Today we'll be discussing John Mulaney's new special, Baby J. And we'll be discussing cocaine intoxication. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. Dr. Asapoja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we will be reviewing John Mulaney's new comedy special, Baby J, and we'll be discussing cocaine intoxication. Nothing says I'm a huge nerd more than cocaine intoxication. That doesn't is that even, I've never heard those words together before. Well. Cocaine use, cocaine abuse, drug abuse. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're right. And of course, those two things have a lot to do with each other, as we will see when we talk about the special. Yes. But before we get into that, yes, we actually need to talk about Netflix. Now, the special is on Netflix, just came out a couple of weeks ago, so we're trying to be current by talking about this special. People seem to like our Chris Rock kind of recap review so we'll do that for this special as well john mulaney been in the news a lot because of these drug issues which have hopefully been put behind him but he is on netflix and we made a bit of an error a couple weeks ago do we want to say we do we want to say we or do we want to say asif doja made an error well no i said it and you agreed with it so that would be anyway the error I nod along on a lot of stuff I don't agree with here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, you explain it. So uh, a few listeners point out that we said that Netflix maybe one day will have ads, a tier, which a, a cheaper tier that has ads. And people were like, yeah, they already have that. Proving that we are the rich elite who don't lower ourselves to know about, I mean, I never even, all I know is my daughter in Ottawa can't watch Netflix on our Netflix account anymore. That's all I know about Netflix. Oh, because of the geospatial. Yeah, I didn't know that there were other options, and I'm certainly, I'm certainly not looking into options of upgrading Netflix to allow for her. No, go get your own. Go get your own. That's a borderline child abuse. Get a job. And in this day and age, not a child. She's not a child, and it's not abuse. Those are the two things that make it not child abuse. People may think that, oh, it's because we're just rolling around in money, just like, no, but it's actually because I think Ali and I are both quite ignorant of the tiers and levels and the thing just shows up on our credit card. You're like, yeah, yeah, okay, sounds good. Yeah, look, I I am maybe not mocked, I'm derided, perhaps, weekly by my wife, who's like, we have to cancel one of these streaming services. This is insane. It's too much. And also because we've been talking about soccer. We love watching soccer. One of my sons plays soccer and loves watching it. And you know, it's like, you can't, like one app doesn't cover all the soccer. You can get Apple Plus. Oh yeah. And and get the Premier League, but then you have to get a different one to get TFC. It's like a whole mess. And so that, and you know, my wife was like, no, we cannot get soccer until we cancel some streaming services, but I can't do that. Number one, because I'm in conversations with producers about TV shows and, you know, references. And I can't be like, oh, yes, Abbott Elementary. No, I haven't seen that yet because my wife and I decided to cut that streaming service. But we're getting it back in six months when the, I can't, you can't you look like an idiot. And also, number two is you, Asif. I can't be like, sorry, Asif, I can't watch this special that you want to do a podcast on. Or I can't even do a podcast. I'd love to. Imagine if I had that streaming service. I'd do it. That'd be weird. So you just keep paying. You just keep paying. You resent it. Your stress level grows. Your resentment towards all streaming services grows. But here we are. 
That's a work expense, I guess. Yeah. And for those of you who have suggestions about illegal oh, no. streamers, please, please, please send them to me directly and not us at Dojo. Okay, Ali, so let's talk about this special. So John Mulaney, new special entitled Baby J. Baby J, he is referring to himself as a little nickname in the special. We've both watched it. Oh, yeah. By the way, wait, wait. before we get started, honestly, there's going to be spoilers. Let's just say that. If you haven't watched the special, I would say I'm going to tell you one thing, which is funny to me, and then you should dip out and go to cocaine. Or watch the special and then come back to this episode. I'll just tell you one thing. My son, who's 11, used to say John Mulaney all the time as just a random, like the same way some kid might start saying, I don't know, Jesus Christ or something. He would just be like, you're acting like a John Mulaney or something. And he didn't know what that meant. He just heard the term John Mulaney. It flowed off his tongue. And then in the last year and a half, now he he's understood it's a human being and he does comedy. And somehow John Mulaney went from this nebulous funny term to a human being who he puts on a pedestal. So I, I told him that we're going to do this John Mulaney episode. And he goes, wait a minute. Does that mean it is safe to say that you make a living talking about John Mulaney? I'm like, no. first of all, this is not making a living. Second of all, you idiot. <laughs> this is like so desperate, so desperate to have any connection to celebrities. It's like, how do you explain to your kid? Your father is the celebrity, bro. That's all you need, huh? Yes. You can get enough at home, but they can't. And so anyway, I thought that was interesting. I will say at this point, you should probably press pause on this. Well, no, no. You listen for a bit longer. Then I'll tell you when to stop because we can talk a bit about John Mulaney before we get into the spoilers. Oh, sure. That makes sense. So John Mulaney, not a guy I knew too, too much about. I know him mainly for hosting SNL because he's hosted SNL, I think like five times. Oh, is that how he came across your radar? Yes, that is actually how I heard about him. And of course, he's a stand-up. Before that, he was a writer on SNL for many, many years and, you know, some of the classic sketches. Yeah. I thought you might know that. Yeah, I kind of only figured that. I'm like, why is this guy on the show? And then I kind of figured it out afterwards. I'd heard his name before, and I did, but I didn't really put it all together until after he'd hosted a couple of times. And I said, okay, I kind of figured this guy wrote many different sketches. Probably the biggest one that he's known the best for is Stefan. He wrote Stefan, Bill Hader's character on Weekend Update. Mm-hmm. With Bill Hader, yeah. He's been on a couple of things. He was the voice of Spider-Pig and Into the Spider-Verse. And he did something I've only seen recently, which is the Sack Lunch Bunch, which is a Netflix special he also did. He's really in with Netflix. He's making money from those ad-supported tiers. So have you seen that, Sack Lunch Bunch? I haven't. That remains to be seen. You know, I watched Nick Kroll's special the other night when I was in Vancouver, just hotel viewing. I was at a hotel that allows you to watch Netflix, as as many of them do now. And I was like, you know, I'm going to watch something. And so one night I watched David Spade, and one night I watched Nick Kroll. Really liked it. Really liked it. I want you to watch it and we'll discuss how it stands up to Mulaney's latest special, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. Mulaney, obviously much more personal and, and real and getting into some some very personal territory here. But Nick Kroll and John Mulaney have worked together, Sack Lunch, but this, they got to have a better name, first of all. And then Oh Hello, that they took to, I believe, Broadway, if, or maybe it was off-Broadway. But yeah, worked together quite a bit, and they are two very, very funny people. And 
I'll just add that John Mulaney, you know, I started teaching this intro to stand-up comedy class in 2021 in January. And I always ask my students, who are some comedians you really like? Among other initial questions out of the gate, that's one of the questions, just to see what the vibe is. And now I ask, because I also learn some comedians' names sometimes. I'm like, oh, I got to look up this person. That's one of your favorites? This person I've never heard of? I call myself a comedian, you know? But then you find out it's somebody who's basically known on TikTok and not really known in the stand-up comedy circuit just yet. Will they ever be? I don't know. But uh, presents a whole other scheduling problem of how much time I want to spend on, on TikTok. But anyway, those first few semesters, I would say the first three, who are the co comedians you like? Some of your favorites? I, I would say John Mulaney's name came up the most. So this is with 21-year-old kids, 21-year-old young adults, I should say. Two, three years ago, it was John Mulaney and then it was Bo Burnham. And then Bo Burnham had his special come out that was during the pandemic. And then it was more Bo Burnham. And then it started being, you know, Taylor Tomlinson, I'd hear, I'd hear a bunch of others. And then once in a while, somebody will be like, carrot top. I'll be like, all right. Mm, just throwing that one out there. You're a weird kid, but thanks for throwing that one out there. And then someone will say some like <laughs> horrific comedian whose name we don't mention anymore. And I'm like, all right, okay, Cosby. Interesting contribution to the, as a 21-year-old, this is what you want. Anyway, but yeah, John Mulaney's name has come up and he's clearly very huge with, you know, this teen demographic up. Yeah, I don't know how this became his... Demographic, probably just because of his age, his own age. He's he's younger. I mean, he's, he's still he's in his forties, but he resonates with people who are more than twenty years younger than him. Yeah, I don't know why it is either. I mean, I think he's really funny. The sack lunch bunch is is really funny. Has a very specific type of humor in it that is consistent throughout it. It's half earnest, half, I don't even know how to explain it. Half absurd. Yeah, half absurd. It is just really well done. They really hit the nail on the head. And again, people have been talking about it for years, but I didn't watch it for years because of the name. I'm like, oh, that sounds stupid. I can't even pronounce the name. I want to say snack lunch bunch, but it's not. Yeah, I think you should, just to teach them a lesson. <laughs> exactly. I will show them. So anyway, really good. Now we go do the spoilers. We'll start now. Spoilers start now. And yes, because what I wanted to say earlier also was that how ironic that I tell my 11-year-old son, because he's like, can I watch it? And I'm like, man, it's going to be a lot of cocaine use and whatever other you know depths he's been exploring, other horrific things he's been doing in the name of drug abuse and drug addiction. So I'm like, I don't know. You know, I tell my son, I, I don't know. Within four minutes of the show, guess who's in the audience? An 11-year-old. I'm like, what the? Still didn't think it was that appropriate that kid was there. I mean, but that one's on the parents, right? You're going to bring your kid to stand-up comedy. So quick aside, I feel bad for the people who left because of the spoilers, but quick aside, has that ever happened to you before where there's a kid in the audience? You're like, oh, I'm about to talk about some racy material. So what do you do? Well, one time was a particularly funny time with my friend Faisal Butt and myself. It was an outdoor show. So this guy brought his young kids and we looked down at him and we were like, oh no, oh no, what are you doing here, sir? You can't, you can't be here. You can't, you know, it was an outdoor free show at Harbor Front in Toronto. You can't be here. We're going to talk about this and we're going to talk about this. We started inventing things that we don't even talk about. He put his hand on his daughter's ears, picked her up in his arms, took his son by his hand and they, he left and he was, he was delightful. He was like smiling and laughing the whole time. Like clearly I've made a mistake. So sometimes you just force people to leave now if they paid money to be there and they paid for their child. 
you go, okay, this is going to be, and John Mulaney did exactly what I go through, which I could see the wheels turning where he's like, okay, I know what I talk about. You know, it's a very well-prepared show. I know what I'm doing tonight. Now this kid is here. How is this going to go? Okay, well, there's nothing I can do, right? Like this kid's here and that is what it is and that's on the parents. But he said exactly what I do so often where I'm like, ah, a child's here. That's not going to bother me at all. I literally have to mention it for the sake of my own ADD to let people know that this is what's happening. I know that that kid's here. That kid knows that I know they're there. And you should know that I'm thinking about that kid. I mean, I really feel like I have to announce it because at some point I also tend to use it as as something to have some fun with. I tell a joke, which is the joke that I was going to tell. I'm not changing my material for a child. Okay. You don't change it. I can't, man. It's sometimes it's this is our job, right? This is the work we do. And you're like, I have to practice these number of jokes a certain number of times so that I can get on this festival and this television taping and do this. And I'm working on something. It's, it's selfish. It's my own thing. I'm not changing that. So typically I make the joke and then turn to the mother and go, have fun explaining that on the drive home, right? That, that kind of thing. We have fun with that. Or we just, yeah, often I've talked to the kid and the kid knows plenty. And sometimes the kids are like too confident and they kind of suck as human beings. And I kind of make that known as well. I don't know about this kid. I think this kid's going to murder one of us when we get older, when he gets old. Another reason to mention is because I can remember, this is slightly different. I was watching the movie Sin City. Do you remember this movie Sin City? It was based on a comic book. Hyper-violent, but kind of cartoon-like, but but very hyper-violent. And I was sitting, I think I went with my wife and a couple of friends when I was living in Toronto. And we turn around and there's this guy there with seriously a four-year-old. And again, I'm in pediatrics. My wife's in pediatrics. I can judge the age of kids by looking at them. So I'm like, this. and this movie is hypersexual, hyperviolent, insane. And then it distracts you from the movie because all you can think about is, oh my God, this kid's going to be scarred for life. This is so bad. What is so brutal? So you think about that. And so sometimes it maybe it's good for you to head it off in the past, right? Like you discuss it, you point it out. Now no one's wondering about like, okay, we've acknowledged this. Let's move forward. Yeah. And then the kid becomes kind of like part of the act. Sometimes if the kid's just super quiet and doesn't have too much of like anything to offer, then maybe I would leave it there. But sometimes a kid can become part of the act. And and John Mulaney did that exact same thing. Yeah, he didn't bring it back as much as I thought he would do, or even how much I've seen you do it. And I, that was interesting. I think it's because he needed to get through what he would need to get through. Well, I don't know if you knew, but he was taping his special. Did you know that? My point is he was taping his special, Asif. So, of course, he's not going to make it all about this kid. That is like a hijacking situation, right? You can't, you're like, this kid has taken over the reins. Uh, but a couple callbacks, a couple callbacks. Yeah, I thought there might be one more, and he did it at the end. He brought Henry back at the end, which I think without Henry, this special didn't have kind of the the button at the end. Henry kind of brought it all together in a way, right? That's true. So, well, let's get into it. Let's talk a bit about the production, and then we can go through summarizing some bullet points about the jokes that they do. First thing I thought when I saw this special was it is filmed amazingly well. The very first shot, which is kind of a wraparound shot, I've never seen anything like that in a comedy special. Well, you know what? I told people to get the hell out of here way too quickly, people who didn't want it spoiled. I should have said this. I would recommend you do not watch this on your laptop. And I would also recommend you do not watch it in bed with your laptop lying on your chest as I did. Cause I, 
as I was watching it, I could feel how impressive this would be on a television. I really could feel it. And I'm like, I'm not in the darkness of my bedroom at night. And, my, and I rarely watch things like this. I'd probably get more done if I did watch like this in bed, but I rarely do. I don't want my laptop in the bedroom. I just, you know, I want like bedroom, but deadlines and so on and so forth. So I, I watch it and yeah, you do yourself a bit of a disservice because it's filmed very thoughtfully. And the one good thing about lying down in bed, it's too difficult to distract yourself and search things. So I didn't stop it and look up the director, but I did as soon as it was done. I didn't know. I think I vaguely knew the name of Alex Timbers. It, it meant something to me, but I didn't really know. Yeah. Mulaney got a, a Broadway pro he'd worked with before he and Nick Kroll did. Oh, hello and did their 2016 stage show with Alex Timbers. And then he'd also done Kid Gorgeous at Radio City in, in New York with Alex Timbers. But Alex Timbers, more importantly, has done like musicals, right? Yeah, Alex Timbers did Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, Beetlejuice, and Moulin Rouge on Broadway. He's won a Tony Award. Yes. And you could tell this person knows what they're doing. It, it was a step above, honestly, most other comedy specials I've seen in terms of the placement of the camera. I thought it was really good. So this is very interesting. There's no intro and he goes directly into the material. I, I made a note of it when I first saw that because I'm like, that's very unusual. No intro, no title slide, no theme music, just goes right into it. It was unusual enough that I actually was like, did I press forward by mistake? Even the most dressed down, simple, down earth comedians, Nate Bargatze comes to mind. They still have some walk in off the street or some following them from backstage onto the, we've just gotten used to that, right? It's gotten less and less. You don't need a whole bunch of like some guy waking up late for his special. Oh, I'm late for my special. I'm telling the cab driver to hurry up. I think those days have sailed. We don't need any of that nonsense, but you at least see a walk-in, but this is like black screens already. I'm like, what's going on? My screen, did I press something? And then he's talking, he's on. I'm like, oh, did I forward something? He's already into a joke about grandparents. So yeah, it's highly unusual. And then you see the, maybe genius is too, too strong, but you see the strength of this choice within a few minutes. And it, it was great. Yeah, I thought it was strong. I agree with you. And there's not even a, ladies and gentlemen, John Mulaney. There isn't even that. Yeah, I've never seen anything like that before. I thought it was it was really good. Now, what's interesting, you kind of alluded to this before, and I just, I guess I'm just dumb. I didn't realize that. I thought all specials were just shot in one take, and then they just used that take. But that's not the way it goes. Oh, Asif. I know. So I guess he did three shows in Boston. Yeah, you have to have done it. I thought it would be more even, but yeah. For, uh, Boston is a weird choice, too. Probably half that audience was high on cocaine. But anyway, that's another story. That's my own issues with Boston. But Boston, an interesting choice. He's like from the Chicago area. I don't know what his connection is to Boston, but great audience, obviously, and gorgeous venue. Maybe it was just, it's the BSO. It's Boston Symphony Orchestra. Is that what it is? Anyway, BSO is what it said outside. Maybe that was the only reason. He's got fans everywhere. So let me just pick the most beautiful spot. And also, yeah, the way it was. So just to get back to the way it was shot before we get into the, the number of times he would have run it. Before the pandemic, I found this hyper panning happening. Audience, audience, audience. Back to the audience stage, audience stage, laughter, audience. Like it was just getting uncomfortable. I, I can't remember off the top of my head which specials fell under that category, but there was definitely a number of them where I'm like, 
I get it. There's an audience, which is hilarious because then we didn't have audiences. So then you noticed like, oh, they can't really pan to any audience. It's all fake, right? It's all forced. And then, okay, we do have audiences, but they're masks. So they don't want to show them as much. And I think that's good. I think the way they showed the audience very selectively in this show, I thought was great. Yeah, they almost didn't. And if you compare it to Chris Rock's special from just a, a last month or the month before, they showed way more of the audience. The strangest part is they reference his little kid, Henry, as you said. They don't show him, which is crazy. Now, again, he's a child. So, yeah, there's probably reasons for that. And he's very high up. He's, he's like in the third balcony. So I don't even know how they knew he was there. I don't know. Yeah, somebody must have said, by the way, that one of the ushers told me there's a child. And yeah. And then where are they? Yeah, because yeah, he knew. He knew already. Just he walked over there and he goes, by the way. And pointed, yeah. But yeah, speaking of Henry, that leads us back into what you were talking about. You got to do multiple specials for exactly that reason. Henry is a great, not you're spending so much money and so much is on the line and you want to get the best of every show. Now people do that for an audio recording, right? They'll do a whole weekend at a comedy club, five, four shows and be like, let me take this joke from this set, this joke from this set. So yeah, he would have to do that. And then. I'm sure at some point they were like, should we take the one where I talk to that kid? And yeah, I, I'm sure there was some discussion. People were like, all right, well, this is not going to be usable. But in fact, I thought it was, it was great. I thought it was like the best choice. Even if he had a, another great show, I thought having a kid there added to the show's called Baby J. He starts talking about when he was a kid and his grandparents. And we're all like these wide-eyed, semi-innocent kids until we're not. And some of us stay innocent our entire lives and some of us discover drugs and get hooked on it. So I felt like that kid in the audience somehow added to the the narrative arc of this show in a way. So a couple of interesting things about filming it multiple times. Obviously, again, I just realized this watching it. So he has to wear the same clothes every time, right? Yeah, he's probably changing his undershirt. He's probably got a couple of different versions of the shirt, just in case you're worried about that, Asif. I would hope so. I would hope so, yeah. And then the other thing is, you, I could tell at the beginning, because the very first shot is this, I was alluding to it before, a wraparound shot where it starts, and then you get to see his point of view looking into the audience, which I love that shot. It, it's so good. And they don't do it enough on award shows or comedy specials or even rock concerts that you're watching that have been filmed. They don't do that shot enough. So I really like that. But you could tell it had to be cut from several different things, right? Because otherwise you would have seen the cameraman on the stage going around him when they went to the wide shot, right? So clearly they were cutting things from different ones. But you're right. This doesn't use a lot of cuts and it allows the camera to kind of follow him around for a couple of different things, especially when he's doing kind of a, a few song and dance numbers that he does. That doesn't do a lot of them, but he does enough that you're able to follow him without these quick cuts. So I, I thought it was, anyway, very well directed is the bottom line. Totally. And when we talk about direction, the entire crew is well aware of where he's going to start his dance number from, where he's going to land. Right. Where you follow him to. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And that's, this is a show that would have had multiple rehearsals and it was all totally worth it. So funny. I just don't think of it like that, but I know you have to be right. And you shouldn't. That's what great comedy is when somebody is like, is this guy just coming up with this on the spot, right? Like, I never think that about Mulaney because it's a way of talking that's theatrical and dramatic. The way he speaks is not the way somebody would speak normally on to somebody else. It's not just conversation. Like, if you took a Tom Segura or something, it's very theatrical and dramatic. So I always think about what goes into his presentation, but yeah. But question for you then about this. 
John Mulaney does this a lot. He did this more in this special than in the other ones I've seen, where he laughs. He's about to tell something and he laughs at it. Yeah. And then he tells it to it. Like he's giggling under his breath. What do you think of that? Is that for sure he's laughing at it or that's a put on as well? That, that's part of the act. This is another reason why people should not be listening if they've not seen the special. I would say that's 100% put on. You cannot convince me it isn't. I've, I've been doing this for 17 years, seen a lot of comedians, and you'll see them on the Friday show, and they thought oh, that was funny, he laughed, and then you go on this Friday late show, oh, he laughed at the, oh, Saturday, he laughed at the same, ah, oh, so, okay, that's part of their, that's part of their show, right? And it happens over and over again. And this is a guy who plans every single moment of his show. He can dart out a little bit with the child is in there, but that's also planned. Like that's also something he's thinking about backstage. He's found out beforehand. It's all so carefully planned. It's pinpoint precision. And so are the laughs. And I think the laughs are also, you go through a run through and somebody maybe suggests it. Maybe he thinks about it. Somebody goes, especially one of the times, it was at least three times he laughed. One of the times I felt it was necessary to soften the blow of what had just been said so he doesn't come off cruel or insensitive to the thing that he said himself. And yeah, no, it's all very calculated. I hope that doesn't ruin comedy specials for people, but. No, I, I just find it interesting. The other thing is he does something which, again, I'm sure this has been written about in comedy books. I don't know how to describe it. Other people have done this before, particularly Louis C.K., but Louis C.K. is a douchebag, so let's not talk about him too much, where he brings up a topic and he's leading you to it. And the audience will start to laugh because they know where he's going with this, right? And so I don't know what you call that, if it's a foreshadowing or something like that, but it's like he knows. And sometimes you do that with more controversial topics or, or sensitive topics, and you're letting the audience get there before you say it. Yeah, it's great. It's a great technique. I get another plan thing is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. And in fact, you would be a little disappointed or maybe even more than disappointed, depending how important that joke is. And if it's a special recording, if the audience doesn't get there, right? Cause you're leading, you're leading. That's what you're doing. You're leading them to get there. And if they didn't, then it's like, okay, this joke may not work the way I think it's going to work. That'd be stressful. Yeah. I, by the way, all of this is new material, except for one joke that I've heard before. Not, I haven't seen John Mulaney live. I'm sure he tried this out when he was on tour. You know, nowadays, all the comedians, right? They, you can't bring a cell phone, right? They don't want any of it getting out because they know that their tour is often going to be used as a special later on, right? And they don't want this all on the internet. One last bit of trivia before this. I guess what happened is the director realized that with all the laughter, they hadn't planned for this, right? Even the dress rehearsal, all the laughter, because it's an old wooden theater with wooden floors, it would shake and it would vibrate the cameras. And they had to do a lot of post-production to stabilize the image, which is just like stressful. It's crazy. Well, actually, that was between show one and then two and three. And after one, show one, they realized that Another huge reason for why you do multiple shows, who knows, you can't plan for these things. I guess nobody's laughing at the symphony typically, so nobody ever <laughs> yeah, exactly. told anybody this. So strange that they would learn it. But yeah, I mean, he's using a gorgeous venue for a purpose it's not been used for. And you think that's an innocent enough thing to do, but yeah, obviously not. But yeah, they had to stabilize. I don't know what they were doing, putting these cameras on like shock absorbers or what, but they had to scramble very quickly so that it's like not a watch. So one show has a kid at it. One show, everything's shaking. Third show might've had some issues. So they were probably in a little bit of a state of panic. Like how do we, but then in the editing room is when you can create the magic. The magic. So 
let's go into the special. We'll go by topic by topic about what he talks about. And we, you could just jump in. I'll just list them. We have it listed here in our Google Doc. And we'll just go through it and, and you can tell me what you guys thought. So he starts off, as you had alluded to, Ali, right away into a joke. And he's talking about grandparents, and the premise of this is the kids in school who have one grandparent die, they often get like, oh, you can sit in the beanbag chair, or they get excused for the assembly, etc. And he goes into all of this. So, and he goes into specifically about which of your which of your grandparents you would want to die. So it's interesting because it's dark, but it's not quite as dark as we're going to get. But what do you think of that? That's leading in a way, too. That's like preparing you for like, oh, here's a little taste of some darkness and we're going into like dark places here. Although he, I found he didn't go as dark as he could have. Totally. Yeah, he alludes to this much later in the documentary and he's like, these are only the stories that I've decided to tell you. And I'm sure there was much, much worse with his addiction. But then he gets right into his addiction and he basically calls out the elephant in the room with his his addiction, him being like divorcing his wife, getting into a new relationship, all these issues with an intervention and drug addiction, and then him trying to kind of come back from everything. And he uses a song, which he loves to do, to kind of introduce it. Not like a song with music and stuff. I think it was just him just singing it on his own. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. We didn't discuss this, but it's a new vibe and a new rep, right? Not a lot of comedians have to contend with this. Some comedians, in fact, could have gone to a drug rehab, relapse, gone back to drug rehab, be back, and and nobody will really. It makes no difference in their comedy. John Mulaney has such a personal style of joke telling, right? Like if you've watched his specials, you know, like, so I married a Jewish woman, right? And then now you're you. Everyone knows that he has a Jewish way, and all of a sudden, like, what he got divorced, but he talks about it in the special. I thought they had a good thing. Like you, you kind of. It's very unfair to the performer, but inevitably, audience members will get this connection to the performer. So yeah, he had his. I think that's what makes this such a clever special, also because. It's more than most comedians have to contend with. Number one, you're regarded as this prodigy, basically, right? As you said, he and Netflix have a great relationship. Why? Because he's a guaranteed, solid act, well-regarded as one of the top comedians of his generation. Number two, he's gone through these very, very public issues. He's publicly been a jerk to people. He's had this downside. He was so prim and proper, and now he's not. And So you're choosing everything. The opening joke, how it's going to be filmed, where it's going to be filmed, the order of my jokes. Should I tell this? Should I go? And so, yeah, I like the way he touches on a little darkness out of the gate. And then mocks himself pretty publicly with that Elephant in the Room song, which I've hoped for plenty of comedians over the years to kind of publicly mock themselves and they don't. They turn the other way and they blame other people like, ah, these people can't take a joke type of thing or whatever, right? Yeah, again, Louis C.K. is being brought up indirectly. And he takes, I mean, he takes full responsibility for everything, for sure. And so then he talks to the kid in the audience, which we've already talked about, and then the credits roll. I, I looked at the clock, uh, my the timer, whatever, on, on Netflix, 10 minutes into the show. Then he does it. Then they do the exterior shot of the theater, and it's called John Mulaney, Baby J, A Wide-Ranging Conversation. It's a very interesting title, too. So tell me about that, Ali. I thought that, too. What, what do you think of that? I mean, 
if you say to somebody, let's have a conversation, the way that opens up everything, that's the opposite of narrow, right? Immediately, a conversation is wide. And to call it a wide-ranging conversation is like, guys, get ready. We're going to go from thing to thing to thing, and we're going to explore a number of different topics, right? And comedy often does, but it still stays within this little bubble. But he goes, he talks about friendship. He'll go out to obviously drug abuse and like being at your worst and, you know, certain things that are expected of you. And I mean, it's just all over the place, relationships and yeah, it is as advertised. And I like the way he did that. It's a very interesting title. And then he goes directly into talking about the intervention, which is what people want to know. They want to know about intervention, rehab, and kind of how he's doing after rehab, but they really want this, the juicy details of what happened in the middle. Which is also an interesting choice, right? Chris Rock, we talked about, left the one thing we all wanted to hear. He left the elephant in the room to the final bit, right? The Will Smith slap. To get that to the beginning until the end. This intervention also, he could have chosen that, but he gets into it right away. And I think that speaks to how much strong, strong comedy writing is in. Not, not that there isn't in Chris Rock's. You know, it also depends on the team around you. Who's telling you what? For all we know, he went to that 11-year-old kid a bunch of times and kept saying, don't, right? And I did this and I did this and then going back and going, don't, right? That would be a great callback because that's the first thing he said to Henry and he could have said that seven more times throughout the show and it would have been funny but what you're saying maybe they just edited that all out they were like hey listen john the show is not about this kid it's becoming the focus is come becoming off of you and your story and your moments and every time you go to that kid it takes you right there's an entire team of people going through like how should we start this how should we end this and all that kind of stuff but the choices made here pretty good so he talks about the intervention, which we'll talk about in a second, but it's very interesting because he has little tiny bits that he sprinkles in throughout the intervention. It's very well constructed. It's my favorite type of storytelling. Yeah, really, really good. Oh, amazing. And, and again, people do this well. Chappelle does this really well as well. He makes jokes about Venmo, how Venmo is kind of designed for people to buy and sell drugs, and that's about it. He talks about getting a haircut right before his intervention and how he made the appointment for 7 p.m., the time he was supposed to show up at his friend's house. And then he also talks about this whole aside about texting from email addresses and how annoying it is when you have like a text from someone's number and then from their email address and how, I mean, this is good stuff on a regular thing, but he's putting it into the intervention story. Totally. You and I have friends who do the exact same thing, by the way. You got to be somewhere at seven and like your haircut is also at seven. And he goes, this is how, this is how drugs work. You think you can totally 100% get both things done. It made me start wondering if some of my friends are on drugs and I don't know it. Yeah, I tell you, they're so late. So he goes into quite a bit of detail about the intervention itself and his friends who were there. He had six friends there in person and six there via Zoom. Ali, I tried to also figure out who the people were who were there because many of them are famous. Do you want to give a little list of some of the people? Yeah. So he says, Fred, Burke, Mike, Bill, Erica, Nick, Natasha, Joe, Kara, David, Seth, Kevin, and Marika or Marika. We know some of them. The Joe, I was wondering who that is. That Nobody really figured that out. But at the very least, it's Seth Myers. He mentions him. Nick would be Nick Kroll, one of his closest friends. He mentions Fred Armisen. We know Fred's there. And the Bill is Bill Hader. 
And then Natasha is Natasha Leone, who people would know from maybe Orange is the New Black, but also you should know her from Russian Doll, Poker Face, a bunch of different things. Pretty amazing. The mic refers to Mike Birbiglia. I listen to Mike Birbiglia's podcast. I know exactly how close he is to Mulaney. I thought that immediately. There's a Burke. That is Mike Berkowitz, who is Mulaney's agent, right? Your agent shows up to your... <laughs> Your intervention, things are very serious. The Marika or the Marika is a producer who used to work with Mulaney at Saturday Night Live and on his stand-up. She co-wrote Snacklevich Bunch with him. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, 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 exactly. And then David and Kara are David Miner and Kara Maslin, who are both executive producers on John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. So still a couple of names we don't know. The Joe who is there. And the Kevin, we don't know who they are, but anyway, I, maybe it wasn't all celebs. I imagine John has some friends as well. Yeah. And he does talk about how Pete Davidson wanted to be there and couldn't, which factors into his story in, in, in a bit. So that, that stuff is all very interesting. Again, it sounds kind of like dire and serious, but it is comedic as well. They had all agreed not to do bits is very funny. The idea of like all these people agreeing to like, you're not going to do it. You're not going to, you're not going to say something funny. It's a very serious thing. And how many times some of them must have had to bite their own fists just to not make a joke about something. Right. Especially because it went long. It was a long intervention. He was very, what's that word? Like he was not cooperative at all. He was belligerent is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so he kind of goes in details about this. And then he moves to a section, which is easily my favorite part of it, because I'm a physician. And he talks about how drug addicts get their prescriptions from physicians. We can talk about his dealer in a second, but we're talking about prescription drugs of abuse. How do you get those, right? So I mean, it is so funny how he basically says you take the doctor ratings on like WebMD or RateMyMD and you reverse filter them. So you start with the lowest rating and that's who you go in. And he's basically, you can get anything you want for them. And he says, it's like the guy from Captain Phillips. <laughs> I'm the captain. Now that is, that is a good, that is a good joke, man. Really good stuff. Then he talks about, oh my God, I couldn't believe this story about this Dr. Michael. You remember this part, Ali? Dr. Mike, buddy. You know how many people are looking for a Dr. Mike after that joke? So he talks about he found this doctor who kind of prescribed him anything, and he has to go to his apartment in New York City, and the guy lets him in, and in their kitchenette, he's like, what do you need, clonazepam? Okay, write that prescription. What do you need? So whatever, opioids, and writes the prescription. But at the same time, he always has to get an injection, whether it's a flu shot or B12, because this guy, Dr. Michael, wants the people who he comes to see to take off their shirt. And that's kind of part of the transaction. Bit of his kink. Yeah. It was unbelievable. So, of course, John Mulaney took off his shirt and got the injections and, and the drugs. And the, the injections are not illegal drugs. They are like vitamin, I said vitamin B12 or the flu shot or the COVID shot. <laughs> right, right. In case anyone thinks that this is also a doctor who gives you heroin or something. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, really crazy stuff. It's the type of stuff that you can't believe is true, but obviously is. And then he eventually goes to rehab and he has some stories about when he's at rehab, including one about Pete Davidson calling him and the nurse thinking it's Al Pacino, which is too complicated of a setup for us to explain, but it was, it's really good. And his Al Pacino impression is just good enough, I think, to just good enough to make it work. Then he talks about how nobody knew who he was in his rehab group, like his small group that he was in with rehab, and that which is also quite funny. And then he has this great story about this Outback Dry Run where he orders Outback Steakhouse to the rehab center. Yeah. Also really good. 
He then goes into talking about the drug dealer who he gets drugs from. And this is the only bit I was alluding to before that I've heard before. I'm pretty sure he said this on SNL. He was on SNL, I think, last year. And he told this joke about the drug dealer and how he knows him. And is he really a drug dealer or not? So that was also good. What did you think about just wrapping up his set? The two last things are the Rolex story and the GQ interview. So what do you think about that Rolex story? So basically he talks about how he needs to get drugs so badly he figures out a way to fool himself and his manager by basically buying a Rolex and then trying to sell it secondhand with his credit card and then trying to sell it for cash afterwards. You know, I was wondering at that time, I, I'm familiar enough with like rampant alcohol abuse, heavy, heavy drinking, some drug use, where I've seen people make such stupid decisions. If any of my friends are listening, they might like, yeah, we've seen you do the same thing. Not important. We're talking about others right now. I can visualize this entire thing. I was wondering as it was happening, if people who have never engaged in this type of behavior or like, that would never happen. I don't know. What do you think? Is, is a fairly straight-laced guy, Asif, if you believed it all? I could imagine. Yeah? Okay, good. That was my only thing. Yeah. You've seen the desperation of people. I don't know that many people who have addiction issues. I think Ali probably knows a few more and has, you've done interventions or been involved, right? In interventions, you know, which, which I haven't, but I think I can believe it with the desperation. It just shows how unwell people are. And again, he, he doesn't really get into that talking and it's certainly not a pity party or anything like that. That's not the way John Mulaney operates. No, it wasn't the tone. I don't think he was going for that at all. I think it's more, he's trying to find the humor in the situation, which I think he does. The last part is this GQ interview. So it's an G- interview in GQ magazine that's been published right before he went to rehab. I think two or three days before he he went to rehab. Yeah. I thought it was so illustrative, so illustrative about where his mind is or was at that time. Like, look at how much care and thought went into his special. Would a guy who cares about, you know, what am I wearing? What are the lights going to look like? Who should I get to direct this? The location? This and that. Would that guy do a geek, a national interview just on a whim? Be like, sure. I'll do an interview, right? This is like where your mind is. Like he would never do an interview just on a whim like that. It would be a much more thoughtful person about, okay, what's it going to be about? What time will it be? Okay, we'll be here. Will it be in person? This feels like he just picked up the phone and it was GQ. They didn't even go through his agent or whatever. And It does sound like that, yeah. Yeah, which is wild. And he reads it on stage. He gets the piece of paper, he printed it out, and he reads it on stage. I didn't find this particularly funny. I'm not sure I would have ended on this, but he did. I would say the same. I found it a great bit for the middle of the show to illustrate where his head was before the intervention. I found it a strange choice for a closer. And and when he closed on it, I knew we were already at a minute 12 or whatever. So it was like this thing was wrapping up, but I was a little surprised and it made the show feel, and I hate to critique such a beautiful, thoughtful thing. It was visually beautiful. It was so intelligent. It was funny, but it had an incompleteness to it because of that closer. We totally agree. <laughs> On the exact same page, that's exactly what I thought. Well, let's let's talk about this. What's your overall kind of impression? You can give a grade. We've never given grades for something like this before on a podcast, but we can do whatever we want. We're in charge here. We're in charge here. If I was in charge of me being in charge, I would say watch it a second time before giving it a more thoughtful grade. On a big screen, on a bigger screen. Yeah, and watch it on a big screen. In the last month, I've watched David Spade, Nick Kroll, and John Mulaney. 
Yeah, it's also hard because I'm trying to stifle my laughs because I'm lying in bed beside my wife for this one, you know, whereas I'm lying in a hotel room. But I think I enjoyed Nick Kroll's more. They both get eights. Nick and he gets an eight on ten. That's what I'm going to say. Well, I would say about the same thing. I was given like an A minus, which I, you know, whatever. We can do whatever we want. I'm going to give letter grades. And I would say it's the reason it's not an A is just because of the last part, which is really too bad. It's really good, though. And we've talked many times in the podcast about stand up specials that are about more than just let's just tell jokes for an hour and a half, right? He's talking about something else. He's telling the story of his intervention and him going to rehab. And that can be hard to make funny. Again, we've talked about Nanette. We've talked about Patton Oswalt's Annihilation. We talked about Chris Drock's Tambourine, where they talk about these more serious things. And it, it, sometimes it's hard to mind the jokes, but this is the genius of John Mulaney, I think. He minds the jokes out of a pretty serious situation when he really almost died. He says it several times, right? Like his friend saved his life and, and he owes them for that. So and that's hard to do. So I think it's a pretty big success. And I may on rewatch give it a higher grade because of that. I think it's hard to do and not a lot of people can do it. They, people try, but it doesn't quite work the way it does. Or the serious stuff just takes you down too much and you can't get back up. But he did it. No, it was a beautiful balancing act too, because it feels like there's a lack of gratitude. It feels like spoiled where he's like, you know what? I'm still pissed off at them. I'm still pissed off. Like, I know they saved me, but there should be no, but I saved me, but, but as soon as the special ends, he puts all those names and he says, thank you for saving my life. So it's like you were reminded that that was comedy and the real facts are thank you for saving my life. And it's imprinted there at the end of his special. And there's such a, I don't know. I, I found that beautiful. It's a beautiful comment on friendship and support and love. God damn it. I think I just gave it an eight and a half. Okay. So given the fact that I was in the restaurant industry for many years and, and stand-up comedy made my life in bars and clubs. It really should be me talking about cocaine, but we went in a different direction. We have Asif, the supposed expert. If you're such an expert, Asif, cocaine, what is it? Where can I get some? No, that's not appropriate. Inappropriate. I do not. Okay. Listen, but you know what? This is a good way to start in my mind because also uh, maybe not the beauty, but this is the importance of John Mulaney's special because we tend to, and when I say we, I'm talking about people I know and, and, and people in the comedy world, and we tend to lump crack and heroin and hard drugs. Something. This is a recent thing. When I was a kid, they were all hard drugs. But in the last decade or more, cocaine is just kind of like, it's so commonplace at this point. It's it's become normalized where my kids make cocaine jokes. You know, the movie Cocaine Bear, anybody can go see that movie. Like, it's just become so normalized. And I think John Mulaney does us a service by reminding people like, oh no, this thing can ruin your entire life. This thing can kill you. Don't Don't forget that. Now, will it kill everyone? Maybe not. You know, when I was a kid, I believed that one hit or snort of cocaine and and that's it. Your life is heading, you know, I, I still think that about crack. I don't know if people can just like take crack or heroin and just be like, well, I'm never doing that again. So anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about its addictive properties and all that. But tell me about cocaine. Many people, most people I'm going to go on record saying think or not think are aware, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but are aware that Coca-Cola 
He used to have cocaine in it. Now, is that a rumor? Is that true? Are those, does those factor into the origins? Here we go, folks. Here we go. So let's start at the start at the start. So cocaine and the coca plant has been around in civilizations for years. You know, the Incas used to think that it was a, the coca plant was a gift from the gods. I mean, with the way it made them feel, you could see why. But they've known in these countries, countries around the Andes Mountains, they've known that it, if you chew the coca leaves, it can enhance your endurance. That's been known for at least, since at least 2000 BC, probably. And then eventually, with more contact with Europeans, with the indigenous population of South America, then it was used more and found that it could have a medicinal purpose. That's around the 1500s, 1600s. And eventually, cocaine was isolated from coca leaves in the mid-1800s. Now, in terms of using it as a drug of abuse... There was a wine fortified with six milligrams of cocaine, which was marketed in France, called Vin Mariani. That was in 1863. Did you seriously just say Vin? Don't you live in a bilingual? Jesus Christ. Okay, all right. Okay, no comments. No comments. All right. We learn. We all learn together. That's right. Then it was used in medicine, and again, around 1884, by this guy, William Stewart Halstead, he performed the first nerve block using cocaine as the anesthetic. He also then became the first notable physician who abused cocaine. <laughs> what, what could go wrong? I, I know. Just cocaine and try it. And... The same year, your buddy Sigmund Freud oh, yeah. published an essay called Uber Coca. And he talked about you can use the cocaine for the treatment of asthma and wasting diseases and syphilis. And then he also became dependent on cocaine. No way. Freud? Yeah. My pal? You think you know a guy. <laughs> but to answer your question, 1885, John Stythe Pemberton, he registered the French wine cola in the United States, which contained 60 milligrams of cocaine in an eight-ounce serving. And that was later renamed to Coca-Cola. I like Uber Coca. If we're going for favorite names of something, Uber Coca is a hilariously amazing name. I don't know of what, an album, a band. Let's write that down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a state of mind. How are you feeling? I am Uber Coca right now. Maybe a Coke will uh, bring that back. No, that sounds like someone's trying to get Coke delivered to their house. Uber Coca. Uber Coca. Oh, yeah. I forgot. It. You know, it was such a good saying that I forgot about the transportation app and, and company called Uber. Oh, my God. So now you can see. So now it's in a popular product in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And by 1909, more than 10 tons of cocaine was being imported into the U.S. every year. So this was the first cocaine epidemic, late 1800s, early 1900s. And eventually, cocaine became a controlled substance in the U.S., so it was outlawed. And then you had this decrease over time, and amphetamines replaced cocaine as the most common stimulant that would people would abuse. And then eventually that reversed in the 1970s. And as you said, the crack epidemic in the 80s made cocaine go back up as to being the predominant stimulant of abuse. So that's basically the story. So you're right. It did. It was used very commonly and was in common products up until the early part of the 20th century, I should say. But again, it's one of these products that were native to the land and people who, you know, originated on this land, used it for their own medicinal and hallucinogenic purposes. 
and then the white men came along and messed thing up. Yeah, not hallucinogenic. It doesn't really have a lot of... No, it's not hallucinogenic. Sorry, sorry. Whatever. Endorphin rushing and... Well, okay. So let's talk about this. So not really endorphins, but but you're getting on the right track here. So the chemical name for cocaine is benzylmethylguanine. So basically what it does is it blocks norepinephrine uptake. So we have some of these neurotransmitters in the brain and the body. So epinephrine is one of them. That's adrenaline. Okay. Another very similar one is norepinephrine or noradrenaline. So cocaine blocks the reuptake of norepinephrine. So you get more epinephrine. It's not being dispersed of in your synapses where your synapses meet. It's sticking around too much and it increases its release. So in other words, it's stimulating everything and not just your nervous system, but all other parts of your body as well that have these receptors for norepinephrine. And we'll talk about what happens when you, when you get overstimulated and how it can cause these effects. So inhaling it is crack. Yeah. Crack is a different formulation of cocaine. I know. I know. Okay. Sorry. Don't act like I don't. But actually, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about crack too, because when you're snorting something, it's directly to the brain and that's supposed to be as immediate as possible. Whereas if you smoke it, it goes through your lungs and then into your bloodstream. But based on many episodes of HBO cop shows, (laughs) I have very limited knowledge about crack, but it seemed like it was pretty instant, the high there also. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. It's actually supposed to be even more, and I'm probably getting this wrong because I don't smoke crack, but if you inhale it and then you kind of like, it's called in medicine a Valsalva maneuver where you kind of like purse your lips, like don't open your mouth, but pretend you're blowing out. It's like when you have to strain or when you're trying to like poop or whatever, like that kind of, apparently if you do that after you've inhaled crack, that really enhances the euphoric feeling. I don't know. Again, like I haven't done this. Uh, I thought, by the way, when you talk about HBO, I thought you were going to talk about, oh no, that's Comedy Central, Tyrone Biggums. I wasn't going to talk about that because I made a lighthearted cocaine remark at the top and you said inappropriate. Right, that's true. But yes, for those of you who do enjoy Dave Chappelle, it's really like quite a seminal figure that he, a character that he created in Tyrone Biggums. Maybe we'll leave it at that. So crack is this lipid soluble form. So what they do is they remove this base that is in the chemical structure. And so that's why it's called free basing because they remove this base. It's, it's part of the chemistry actually. And it's called crack because what you do is when you heat up the cocaine, it makes this crackling sound. And then once you remove this base, so now you're free basing, you're able to inhale it. So because it becomes what's called lipid soluble. So that it's not lipid soluble normally, and this allows it to become when you heat it up. And so it's more readily available. Apparently it creates this bigger high. It's very rapidly absorbed, more rapidly absorbed than when you snort it. Not as rapid, of course, as injecting. And of course, then in the 80s, it moved cocaine from being this kind of designer yuppie drugs to being widespread everywhere and especially affecting people of lower socioeconomic status. I remember it was so very Hollywood and portrayed as such in the 80s. Remember these Robert Downey Jr. movies, Less Than Zero and... Big Lights, Bright City. Do you remember that? Michael J. Fox in a very serious... Yeah, I don't think that's the name of it, but yeah. Oh, is it? I'm in the neighborhood. Big City, Bright Lights? Bright City? Big Lights? Bright Lights, Big City, anyway. But yeah, it was really like cocaine was the drug of people who were 
pretty wealthy or or at least on their way to being wealthy, you know, junior kind of consultants, executives, iBankers, that kind of stuff. And then I remember thinking for years, like cocaine must be, I don't know, like 200. It must be like the saffron of drugs. If that's a, a reference that's lost on you, Asif, as a guy who's, uh, do you get it? I thought it would be, oh my God, I'm so proud. So I've cooked with saffron, very expensive, put in like one of those threads and then, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. It was like 200 bucks for a little bag of like, you know, cocaine threads. Find out if you can get cocaine for 20 bucks in a bag. I was like, what the? This is insane. <laughs> what, what was all the hype about? So, yeah, it has been become very commonplace. But I think what happens is also the addiction and the lifestyle and you continue your night and you probably drink four times more than you normally would. So it just winds up being. Right. I actually do want to talk about that in a second. But, you know, you're right. It has been increasing over time, this use of cocaine. So I forgot to mention this before, but there was an estimate in 2018 that over 5.5 million people in the U.S. had reported cocaine use in the past year. 2% 2% of the population. Did you know about the Irish currency statistic from a few years ago? No, what's that? The percentage of the Irish currency, like the bills that had cocaine remnants on it? No. Well, people should look it up. I don't have that. And it's obscene. It's above 75%. It's like really, really insane. Okay. I will try and find that and put that in the show notes. And if it doesn't exist, I will put a note saying Ali was making it up. You can definitely do that. And just trying to insult the Irish. Oh no, never. That's not who I am. Listen, cocaine related deaths increased about 251% from 2018 to 2019 in the U.S. as well. So it is continuing to be a problem, even though we don't talk about it. But getting back to what you were talking about before, mixing alcohol and cocaine does happen. About 30 to 60% of individuals who use cocaine combine it with alcohol, and that causes increased mortality, increased liver injury, and increased behaviors that can lead to personal injury, like driving under the influence. And 74% of cocaine-related fatalities in the U.S. is usually associated with using another drug, most commonly alcohol. So it definitely increases your risk of death if you're combining with alcohol. I don't want you to think I wasn't listening to you. I was very much listening, but I was doing something that I never do, which is called multitasking. Traces of cocaine were found on banknotes tested in the west of Ireland as part of a research into contaminated notes. Research on traces of cocaine on banknotes in the west of Ireland has been found on what percentage of notes, Asif? 100. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, buddy. I'm sorry. Okay, send me that that article. I'll put it in the show notes or put it in our Google Doc. Okay, by the way, we also talked previously before about Chris Farley's death. He was using cocaine and heroin. That's a speedball when you combine those together. So cocaine and heroin is speedball. John Belushi also died from that. River Phoenix also died from that. So a dangerous combination. And that's the concern about about cocaine is, is this this increased risk of death in these patients who are using it. And what is it that's causing the death exactly in the end? Is it your heart is racing out of your chest? I mean, is it is it really? Yeah. Exactly. So Ali, he actually said what it is. It's called tachydysrhythmia. I don't remember saying tachydysrhythmia. No, no, no. Sorry. It's on our Google Doc, but I thought maybe you knew what that was. So he doesn't, guys. He doesn't. <laughs> 
So tachydysrhythmia is is a rapid heart rate and irregular heart rate, and that's the cause of most non-traumatic cocaine deaths. You can also have other things. You can have an actual heart attack because cocaine acts as a vasoconstrictor. It narrows your blood vessels. Okay, so if it's doing that in your brain or in your heart, you could have significant issues. So using cocaine gives you a 14-fold increased risk of stroke compared to other people. You could also get seizures from the cocaine. And if you see a young person with a stroke, say in their 20s, you need to think, oh, maybe they're using cocaine, and that could be the cause of their stroke. So neurology, we have to think about that. You can also get hyperthermia. So your temperature can go high with the cocaine, and that can be a predisposition to you basically just just dying because it means you have severe toxicity, and you're probably about to have your kidneys shut down, uncontrolled bleeding, liver injury, muscle breakdown, and probably dying. But it's kind of one of the things that can indicate that you're leading to that. Some people, Ali, have had a temperature as high as 45.6 degrees Celsius in their body. Hot, 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 hot. <laughs> it is. I've never heard of that before. In any other condition, that is insanely hot. So, I mean, you are clearly about to die if that's going on. You can also, Ali, have some morbidity because of what's called a pocket shot. Do you know what a pocket shot is? I don't. I thought it was when very macho men go around uh, flicking each other in the testicle areas of their genes. It's a pocket shot being, oh, dude, stop. Like, no, I, it sounds like that was, it sounds like something out of a Judd Apatow movie, doesn't it? I thought it was like a billiards thing but anyway oh that too i would have gone there but okay okay so when you or a person is giving themselves an injection of cocaine intravenously they often attempt to do it in the jugular vein which is in your neck okay now they practice this and try and get it right but you can imagine they're not physicians or nurses they might get this wrong and if you go in the wrong direction you will pierce the top part of your lung, and you could have air in, into your lung cavity, you could produce blood there, and that's what's called a pocket shot, when you're basically trying to do this injection into your internal jugular, and then you make an error and basically create lung problems because you're injecting stuff into your the area of your lungs. So just a couple other things to wrap up here, Ali. One is you may be wondering about testing. How can you get around testing? Why would Ali ever ask about that? Don't put that on me. Luckily, I've never worked for anybody. So nobody tells me that. No, I've never worked for a company that says they're going to. So it's, these things haven't come up. But yeah, it's a huge concern. You know, I've been in these conversations where some people have a lot of knowledge about this, you know, and it's like, no, with marijuana, you have to have 28 days with Coke. You can do this, you do this, and it's out of your system in three or four. I, I can't say that I'm totally dialed in on those conversations. Thankfully, I don't have to be particularly concerned about such things. But yeah, I think it is definitely something of interest to show how long it stays in your system, which, from what I know, not that long. Not that long, no. And you're right, something like marijuana stays in your system longer. So there is a way, apparently, I don't know why I'm telling people this, to mask the cocaine in a drug screen. If you are doing a urine screen, which is a very common way we test for toxins and drugs of abuse, you add drain cleaner or bleach and you could mask the cocaine. Wait, you add that to your... Urine, not to your, don't drink it. Not to your glass of water. Okay. You know what? This episode is going to require a hard, I'm not your doctor. And then also I'm not your drug dealer, right? There's a little bit too much 
consulting going on here. That's right. And an important thing to know is no substances will cause a false positive urine drug screen for cocaine. And this came up a little while ago. I saw a patient a while ago who had seizures, a little child who had seizures and their drug screen was positive for cocaine. So you know that it has to be they ingested it somehow because it was lying around the house. Because, yeah, so apparently. So the very interesting. In terms of treatment, I mean, you know, you can treat what we call supportive care if you come in with cocaine intoxication or even the agitation that can occur with this, which, like we said, can lead to which can lead to the high temperature and and the failure of all your organs. So you just kind of support people out of that. There is some evidence for a drug called topiramate that you can use for people who have cocaine addiction to help them kind of kick the addiction. And topiramate is interesting for me because it's an anti-seizure medicine. We also use it for migraines, some evidence that you can use it for other conditions as well. So that is kind of interesting. I don't know how often it's prescribed because I don't see patients with cocaine addiction, but just thought I'd throw that out there in terms of a little bit of interest for me in this topic. I like it. A little personal flavor. Good for you. So that's our episode for today. Let us know what you guys thought. John Mullaney, let us know what you thought about his stand-up special. Very curious to see your thoughts, if you thought the same thing that Ali and I did, how it compares to some other specials you guys have seen recently. DrVComedian at gmail.com, DrVComedian, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are everywhere. Ali, anything to plug before we get out of here for the month of May? We start filming on Sort Of. If you don't know the show Sort Of, I would recommend strongly that you... Watch it irrespective of my involvement. Very, very interesting show. It's a Pakistani transgender lead in this show. Who we have had on this show, actually. Bilal Beg has been one of our guests. I'd recommend that interview, too. They're so incredibly thoughtful and centered and like a real a real star on the rise if not a star already but i think you know we're very excited to see what the world holds for uh, bilal Beg after sort of but we're recording there's no after yet we're very much recording season three right now peabody winning show by the way actor nominated actor winning show award winning show so we start filming that which is great and then i'll be around there's a few tour dates and stuff standupali.com is the website We will check that out for sure. And remember, I'm definitely not a drug dealer. Okay, everybody. Drug advisor, perhaps, in this episode? No, not even. No, no. But remember, although I'm a doctor, I am not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you.